So we're starting Jonah, back to the Minor Prophets. And Jonah is such an interesting character, I must say. Jonah chapter 1. Now we're going to take, we're going to go through the whole chapters. I think I'm going to just go ahead and not read through the whole text because we're just, we're going to take it verse by verse. And so we'll kind of work through as we go, but we're going to take the entire chapter. Uh, we'll take a chapter a week. So uh, this should last about four weeks. Uh, Jonah's an interesting character that resonates with a lot of people because he, it's easy to see ourselves in Jonah. He kind of represents a lot of people, doesn't he? Have you ever been to a position where God told you to do something you didn't want to do it? I have. I have. Have you ever had a heart of hatred towards other people? I have. I have. Have you ever tried to ignore God's leading? I have as well. So I can relate to Jonah. Uh, I can see myself with him sometimes. Most people with a book named after the Bible are the heroes of the book. Jonah is no hero. <laughs> Jonah is what we call an anti-hero, right? An anti-hero or somebody who lacks, who, who lacks all his superhero characteristics. He has no heroic characteristics whatsoever. Jonah is just like me. I, I lack all heroic uh, characteristics. The hero of this book is actually God himself. He's the hero of the book. We'll start with a little background before we get into the actual text of the book. We're not told specifically who wrote the book. A lot of people assume it was Jonah. We're never told that, and the entire book is written in the third person. So I would hesitate to say that Jonah wrote it, but somebody wrote it, obviously. It was written sometime between 793 and 758 B.C., Although there is a short revival in Nineveh, in Nineveh, Nineveh, wow, Nineveh, I was, and I was doing school for the kids all day, I should know better, Nineveh, ultimately the revival didn't last and the kingdom was destroyed around 612 BC. Jonah is a picture of the Great Commission. We see the Great Commission in this book, I was studying this out this week and I was amazed. Jonah's called to go out to a Gentile people to preach repentance in the name of the Lord. That's what the Great Commission's all about. Jonah is an Old Testament picture of the Great Commission. He's to leave his home, he's to travel abroad and bring the message of repentance. Do we have the microphones we're reading? Let's pass it around and see if other people want to read tonight, not you, Dale. I saw that hand. Not you, Scott, either. I've been listening to you guys read all day, and we're just, we're done for the day. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Somebody want to look that up? Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Jonah there is a picture or type of Christ. Teresa's got it there. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For 
three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented of the preaching of Jonas, and behold, the greater than Jonas is here. It's a great passage of scripture there. There's so much just there to unpack, we don't have time for. But uh, it's funny, Jesus came and he fulfilled all the prophecies in the, in the birth of the Messiah. And uh, he fulfilled all that the Old Testament prophesied he would do. He healed, he raised the dead, he calmed the storms, he, he, he controlled nature. He did all those things. And then, of course, the unbelieving Jews came to him and said, prove to us that you're the Messiah, right? He was doing all the stuff the Bible said he would do. And so he tells them, a wicked and adulterous generation, you're, you're adulterers. You're wicked. You already have a sign. I'm here doing what the Bible says would happen. So then he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonas, or Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's a great correlation to Acts chapter 2. We're not going to turn there, but in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching, and it says that God, I'm trying to, I don't want to misquote, I should have looked at it. I'm going to, I'm going to turn there. Don't worry about turning there if you want. I'm going to turn there real quick. I don't want to misquote the Bible. That's, earlier this week, Reuben was talking about giving account for teachers when you stand before God. He got me all scared. So I'm going to make sure I don't uh, misquote this here. And uh, see, Acts chapter 2. I believe it starts in verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. So basically what he's telling them is, listen, God already approved of him by all the things he was doing, and you rejected him, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. God overruled you. God proved who Jesus was by raising the same thing Jesus says here. That's the sign given to you. The sign is, I'm going to rise again from the dead, and you're going to be condemned as unbelievers. I love that, that condemnation of the Jews there that he gives them right there. Then he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. What a powerful condemnation. Now, Jesus is not saying that at the judgment, you know, the men of Nineveh will stand up and testify. But what he's saying is their repentance will testify against that first century, right? In other words, you're going to receive greater punishment than Nineveh because Nineveh repented at Jonah and a greater than Jonah is here and you refuse to repent. Understand this church, there is greater and lesser punishment in hell. Understand that. That's scary. For all those who are sitting in churches across America who are false converts, that's scary. Because to whom much is given, much is required. That's why the Bible says it's better never to know the way of righteousness than to know and to turn from it. Because you're going to be held accountable for more. You will suffer a more severe punishment 
It's better to be somebody who never heard the gospel than somebody who heard it over and over again and turned from it. And Jesus says, Jonah was a type, a shadow. I'm greater than Jonah and you're not repenting. They repented for him, for the lesser guy. That should strike fear and trembling in every one of us. I was talking to somebody one time, we are talking about the security guards at the abortion clinics who sit and hear the gospel week after week after week. Think of their accountability before God. So Jonah was a type of Christ, a picture of Christ. But Jonah, of course, as with all types and shadows, he's the weaker type. See, Christ was the victorious one who rose from the dead in victory. Jonah was actually being disciplined when he made the picture of Christ. He was the weaker. He was the lesser of Christ. Let's get into our text a little bit here. Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, we're going to pause there. Jonah was the son of Amittai. This connects him to the Jonah in 2 Kings 14.25. I'll read that one. 2 Kings 14.25, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering, in, uh, entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Geth-Hefer. I think I got that right. This gives us a little bit more information on the prophet. The reference in 2 Kings places him during the reign of Jeroboam II. We also learn that he is from Geth-Hefer, which later became known as Galilee. This is important. John 7.52. Who wants to read that one? John 7.52. No. Just take it as a universal no for the rest of the night, okay? All right. And every time you guys raise your hands, I'm going to make Michael read. So, <laughs> Michael, get those kids under control. John 7.52. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look. What an amazing condemnation of the Pharisees, isn't it? isn't it? So this is the time when they sent soldiers to arrest Jesus, and they didn't. Right? The soldiers come back with that amazing phrase, no man ever spake like this man. I love that. They recognize there's something different about him. And then they begin to argue among themselves, is our law judge a man before it hears him out? And, all this? and so the Pharisees are trying to get you know, suspicious. Are you also his disciple? And then they say the most amazing thing. Have you ever had somebody talk to you and they're like, the Bible says, and you're like, no, it never does. It never says that. I had a friend, a good friend of mine. If he's watching this, he'll laugh about it. Uh, 20-something years ago, he was preaching at church. He's not really a preacher, but he was preaching on a night when they had different men in the church preach. And uh, he, he got up there, he's got really into his message, and he goes, like the Bible says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And the whole church just like had this blank stare, and he goes, what? And somebody goes, that, that was C.T. Studd, not the Bible. He goes, oh, I heard it so much, I thought it was in the Bible. You ever heard something, the Bible says this, and you're like, no, the Bible doesn't say that. You don't even know what you're talking about. That's just going on here. They said, are you also his disciple? Look, search the scriptures. No prophet comes from Galilee. Except Jonah. Jonah came from Galilee. 
They didn't even know their own scriptures. And they're trying to condemn Christ through the scriptures. They themselves are misunderstanding and misquoting. What's the principle there? Know your Bible. Know your Bible. Back to Jonah 1, verse 2. What did the Lord say to Jonah? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. So Jonah's commanded to go to Nineveh. This was the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. They were the hated enemies of Israel at this time. Okay? This city was ancient. It was founded by Nimrod in Genesis 10, verse 11. So it had quite a wicked history. It stood on the left bank of the Tigris River near the present town of Mosul in Iraq. We see here a beautiful picture of the gospel going to the Gentiles. As I said, Jonah really is a missionary, a picture of missionary work. Nineveh is called a great city. Not only was it a large metropolitan area, but there were four other cities nearby. They were no more from than 18 miles in various directions. So when it says Nineveh, I don't think he's talking about just about Nineveh, you know, downtown Nineveh. I think he's talking about the cities also around there. Uh, they were probably included in both the warning and the later destruction. We see that in places like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It says Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about them were destroyed, okay? Um, that's in Jude 1.7. Where we live, much of the area is often termed Los Angeles, right? Especially for people who don't live here. They'll say, oh, you live in L.A., and they could mean Lomita, they could mean Downey, they could mean West Hollywood. It's just, it's a metropolitan area with many, many cities, and so... Uh, that's what uh, Nineveh was. So Jonah's commanded to go to Nineveh, that large city, and cry against it. What was his cry? It was the gospel. Before Christ, I understand that, but it was the gospel. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your wickedness. Turn to God. That was his message. That's our message today. Our message has changed very little. His was turn to God or be destroyed. Ours was turn to God or be destroyed. Right? His was looking forward to a Messiah. Ours is looking back. So his gospel was, hey, God's going to send a redeemer to redeem his people. Our message is God has sent a redeemer to redeem his people. But it's essentially the same message. Repent. Turn from your wickedness. Turn to God. Or face destruction. God says their wickedness has come up before him. This brings us again, as we talked about in Habakkuk, that God is merciful and allows people to sin up to a certain point. Um, God is not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? God is not trigger happy. I think that sounds right. You know, he's not just a, a, a giant ogre waiting to squash people when they do something wrong. He has a law. He demands perfect obedience to his law. And when mankind breaks the law, he allows them to break it to a certain point until they earn judgment. People often say, well, the Bible is so harsh. I mean, hell forever and ever. Well, first of all, you, if, you, if, that, if that bothers you, you don't know the holiness of God. First of all, right? Infinite crimes deserve infinite punishment. And we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. A God who is altogether not like us. And that God who we have offended is patient. 
and he sets a limit, and he does not bring judgment until that is reached. Every one of his judgments are just. We saw that in Genesis 15, 16, right? He sends uh, the children of Israel into, into Egypt because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, they have not sinned yet to the point of being wiped out, so we're going to wait. Um, we see that with the Jewish leadership in Jesus' day in the first century. He said they filled up the sins of their fathers. What does that mean? It means they completed. They reached the boiling point. The penultimate sin of mankind was killing our creator, killing our Messiah. All that, that had been done before that was leading to that point. He'd been patient with Israel over and over again, right? Punishing and then bringing them back. Punishing and then bringing them back. Destroying the temple and rebuilding it. And finally, in Jesus' day, he says, you're going you're gonna to sin to the limit. In fact, in Daniel 9, it says it was an overflowing of abomination. No, you overflowed the cup of sin. You overflowed it by killing the Messiah. God is patient. They were near the point of God's judgment, and God was sending a warning. Just like, uh, if you know football, it's a two-minute warning. What's a two-minute warning for? The end's coming. Get ready. Almost done. You don't start, you don't start a quarter of football, the fourth quarter, and then just they got to play, and it's a surprise. When the bell rings, you're done. No, they, there's a warning. Two minutes left. This is it. I used to play football in school. I remember the two-minute warning well. Normally, we were down. It was prepared to lose. <laughs> but there was times that warning helped. So God is telling Nineveh, listen, you're almost there. Repent. Not only was he patient. By the way, these are Gentiles. These aren't his covenant people. Not only was he patient with them, but he sent them a warning ahead of time. and says, your time is almost up. Repent. Repent. Don't put it off. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The city spoken of here is Tarshish, is most likely, uh, I want to say this right, Tartiso. This was a Phoenician city on the south coast of Spain. This puts it in the opposite direction of Nineveh, directly opposite of Nineveh. So he's going directly opposite of where God has told him to go, right? All throughout the Bible, we see these examples, don't we? Of these fleeing prophets. We see Adam sin, and what does he do? Goes and hides in the garden, right? I don't mean to sound irreverent, but I can see God walking up and say, you don't know me at all, Adam. <laughs> you can't hide from me. What does Elijah do? He runs, hides, says, kill me, Lord. He's depressed. Jonah runs away. This is all, all this failure, by the way, is a picture for us, preparing us for the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, who in the Garden of Gethsemane did the opposite thing, didn't he? Not my will, but your will be done. Right? If there's some other way, if there's some other way, but not my will, your will be done. He never ran. He did always those things that pleased the Father. 
So we're told he rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. I think it's obvious that Jonah knew God was everywhere. Okay? Psalm 139, 7. Who wants to read that? Actually, it's 7 through 12. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Brother Earl's got that one. Yes, sir. Whether shall I go from thy spirit, or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I descend up unto heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Amen. So Jonah was aware of this psalm. Jonah knew God is everywhere. There's no place you can go to get out of the presence of God. What I think is meant here by Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord is I think he fled Israel. His fleeing Jerusalem, his fleeing, his fleeing the place where the presence of God was. Um, ancient Jews, I read anything, ancient Jews believed that the ministry of the prophet only was only active within the boundaries of Israel. And that if they leave, they're kind of ad, they're kind of released from their ministry of being a prophet. I think Jonah was hoping to be released from his ministry. Well, God will just find somebody else, you know. That's what it means by fleeing from the presence. In other words, he's fleeing from the land of Israel to abdicate his responsibility, thinking that God won't, hoping that God won't hold him accountable for that. He's wrong. Um, but we see the same language in Genesis 4.16, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And in, in Genesis, it refers to Cain going out to another land from the presence of the Lord, from the, the area of Eden, the garden where, where the Lord had set up his, for better, lack of a better word, kingdom, right, his presence. He went out to a different place. And so we see the same language used here for Jonah. He would rather abdicate his office of prophet than witness to his enemies. Think about the, the amount of hate that you have to feel to do that. Sadly, this attitude is still around today. I remember when I was a teenager at uh, the church we came from in Bakersfield, I, I went there, I was there for, for, was it 12 years this last time? 2010 to 2022. But I grew up there from uh, 1990 something or the other two until 1998. So my teen years were there. I remember as a, a young man, uh, I volunteered to be an usher, take the offering. And I remember one uh, missions conference, we had a missionary in from Vietnam. And our head usher, who's dead now and probably not a Christian, um, he uh, had a lot of problems coming from the Vietnam War, a lot of trauma issues, but just a lot of hatred in his heart. He was obsessed with it. I remember staying in the back, and he leaned over to me as the missionary from Vietnam was talking. And he goes, Rick, let me tell you, 
As far as I'm concerned, they can all go to hell. We shouldn't send them one missionary. And I was an unsaved, like 16, 17-year-old boy at that time. And my hair stood up. I was like, that, I knew that was a deep hatred. To hate people so much, you want them to perish. But that's what Jonah was doing. Jonah didn't care if they were going to perish. Let them perish. Let them die. That's what Jonah's, Jonah's attitude is. You know, we, we got to get past the whole cutesy Jonah and the whale Sunday school story. This man was saying, let them perish. I'm not going to go. That's frightening. I used to listen to a apologist. He's a pastor in Arizona, although I don't think he's qualified to be a pastor anymore. But he's so hung up on politics. But he, he said openly on the radio, I, I'll preach anywhere but California. Those communists over there. I told my, my wife and I were talking about it. I said, what, those communists don't deserve the gospel? Don't need to be saved? When you've decided a group of people don't need to hear preaching, you're no longer qualified to be a pastor. I'm sorry. Or a preacher of any kind. No. The church for years has sent missionaries to cannibals to give them the gospel. Um, I remember back in, I want to say around 2014 or so, um, it's during President Obama's time. As you can imagine, I had a lot of friends on Facebook who were not fans of his. I was not a fan of his, but somebody posted, this man needs to be saved. And a Facebook friend who's a Christian, the wife of a street preacher, commented under there, that man doesn't deserve the gospel. And I trembled for her. Because my first thought was, you don't have the gospel either. We cannot hate people, even if we disagree with them, even if there are mortal enemies. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent, and he's commissioned us to go and disciple the nations. That's why I said Jonah can be seen in a lot of us, I think. Is there anybody you hate so much you'd rather than perish than give them the gospel? Let me just say, if that's you, repent, pack your bags, and go be a missionary to those people. You owe them the gospel. You owe them the gospel. It breaks my heart because these are true stories I'm giving you that from people I've seen and heard say these things. This exists today, this kind of hatred. I don't care who it is. They need to hear the gospel. So he went down to Joppa, which is the modern city of Jaffa on the Mediterranean Sea, about 50 miles from his hometown. Verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. The words sent out... He sent out a great wind. Give us a picture of the suddenness of the storm. It could also be said he cast forth or threw at them 
a mighty storm. This is not just a natural winter storm. This is a divinely ordained discipline for a sheep going astray. This is the shepherd reaching out his shepherd's crook and grabbing it by the neck and pulling it back in. That's what this is. And he threw it at them. He hurled it at them. He brought it suddenly upon them. This storm was under the complete control of God. Now let me just say, all storms are under the complete control of God. But this storm had a purpose. In fact, if you really, I was, I was digging into some of the Hebrew stuff behind all this this afternoon. If you look at the original emphasis in the original language, really, this, there was no storm if you, out on the sea. There was a storm over their ship, basically. It was in, it, this was for them. The whole ocean wasn't stormy. You ever seen those, those, those old cartoons or movies where they have the, the black cloud and follows the person and just rains over them? That's what's going on here. In other words, God was after Jonah. Some comparison can be made to the, I don't know, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right, but Uriquillo, which is what caught and broke apart Paul's ship in Acts 27, 14. I think I pronounced it wrong. I apologize for that. You can look up Acts 27, 14 and see the real word. That wind was common near Crete, which is not in the area we're at right now. Josephus wrote of something called the Black North Wind, which was known to hit near Joppa. He thinks this is what hit Jonah's ship, but it wasn't the normal Black North Wind, but one brought suddenly by God for a specific purpose. There was a mighty tempest in the sea. Some see this as referring to uh, just that part of the sea, as I mentioned, where the ship was. So, in other words, they recognized the supernatural nature. That's why they all ran to their gods. I mean, they, they knew this was not normal. This wasn't a normal storm. This is, this is supernatural. This is something outside the norms. The verse says the ship was like to be broken. This means they actually thought it was breaking up. That's what it means. It was thought to be broken. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. Wasn't that nice for him? The Hebrew term mariner here is also where the word salt comes from. Have you ever heard the term salty sailor? It's got a very ancient origin. That's what it's talking about there. They cried every man unto his God. They were probably Phoenician traders trading with Joppa, so they would have had a multitude of gods. They cast forth their wares. I don't think this refers to the merchandise of the ship. That was too valuable. It was worth a lot of money. That, that would have been the last thing that you throw overboard. The last thing you throw overboard is your stuff that you're trading, your merchandise. You don't want to lose money, right? It probably refers to furniture and equipment first. We see this in Acts 27, 19 with Paul on the ship. They throw over all the extra stuff, all the tackling, all the furniture, all the, all the stuff they don't need, they may not need. And then in Acts 27, 38, they finally throw over the wheat. They throw over the merchandise right as a last-ditch effort. Jonah, during all of this panic, had gone down to the sides of the ship. This is a reference to the bottom of the ship. He was fast asleep. This means in a deep sleep. Uh, John Calvin calls it a snoring sleep, right? That's how they like, he can't be wakened. He's in a deep sleep. In fact, the, the Septuagint, the, the first century Greek translation of the Old Testament, says he was asleep and snoring. 
So he had most likely fallen asleep before the storm. And we have here another picture of Christ who was asleep in the midst of the storm as well, Mark 4.38. Right? But Christ, the better, Jonah the lesser, Christ was sleeping with confidence. Jonah was sleeping for sorrow because he didn't follow what pleased the Father, because he was running from God, because he did not do what he was supposed to do. He's fallen asleep. The, 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 the idea here is that he was crying himself to sleep and fell into a deep sleep. In other words, he was in great sorrow over his disobedience. Christ never disobeyed. Christ's sleep was earned. Jonah is an imperfect picture of Christ, and his sleep, probably from sorrow, my next note here before I say the wrong thing, out of order, over what he had done. This would be similar to the disciples in Gethsemane. Luke 22, 45, remember that one? Disciples in Gethsemane. For sorrow they fell asleep. In other words, they were so sorrowful, they cried themselves to sleep. They couldn't stay awake. That's what we see here with Jonah. He was so sorrowful, he cried himself to sleep. Verse 6. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And uh, honey, I think I overcommitted myself again. So we're going to cut it off after this verse and pick it up next week with the rest of the verses. I don't think I'll get through all 17 tonight. We're already after 8 o'clock. Let's finish verse 6 here. The shipmaster, being the captain of the ship, comes in and almost mocks him. Get up, old sleeper. What are you sleeping for? Get off the floor. Do something. You realize we're dying, right? Like we're throwing over our stuff. We're trying to say, what are you doing asleep down here? He was angry. There's some anger in his words here. He's angry at him. It's an ironic moment. First of all, as the prophet, he should have been the one casting rebuke to the people of Nineveh. Instead, he's being rebuked. He who should have been rebuking the heathen was being rebuked by the heathen. It's an interesting use of language here in this next part. They use the term Ha Elohim, which indicates that through their polytheism, they had a vague notion of one supreme God. When they said to call upon your God, or thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. They had a vague notion. Calvin taught about this verse that behind and above the many gods whom the heathen invented for themselves, they retained the idea, vague perhaps, and indistinct for the most part, but starting into prominence in times of danger and distress such as this, the notion of one supreme God by whose providence the world is governed and in whose hand the life and safety of all men are held. In other words, what Calvin's saying here is these men, though they were polytheists, they had their multiple gods, they had a vague notion that there was one God greater than their God who controlled all things, and that they were urging Jonah to reach out to that God. You know what that tells me? Even the heathen who don't know God have a vague notion that God is out there. Right? That's the true light which lights every man that cometh into the world. Right? We have that naturally put in. We know by nature Romans 1 talks about that. We know God exists. Atheists are only atheists because they want to deny God exists because they love their sin. Also Romans chapter 1. We know God exists. 
if you ever have gotten into the story of Jim Elliot, when they reached that tribe in Ecuador and got to know them, they had a religion, right? There, there is no, you realize there is no atheist outside of the universities, right? Like we've never met an, a tribe out there in the world and they were like, oh, there's no God. It's naturally in humanity. And they even had these, they had never had contact, as far as we know, with the gospel. But they knew that there was a spirit, not, not even multiple, just a spirit. So when you did something that was wrong, you knew you did wrong, and the spirit may punish you for doing wrong. And they thought that when you died, you had to fight this big giant snake. Ironic, it's a snake, right? Go back to the garden and all that. They had to fight this big giant snake, right, in order to reach the next existence. After They had all these little shadows of the scriptures that they knew. So all men know that God exists. These men here, they didn't know who he was. And so they set up other gods. But even in that, they knew that their gods were not as powerful as whoever this one supreme being is. Let's stop there for tonight. Um, I won't go to the, our summation, which is in your, you can take it home with you. It'll be in your handout next week, too. We have the kind of summation of the whole message, but or the whole series, the whole chapter. But if I were to draw... From this chapter, I want to draw a couple of things. It's not in my notes, so I can put these away. Um, Jonah was running from God, from God, not because he was afraid, because he was filled with hate for other people. Okay. He was carrying a message of repentance, but he needed to repent himself. And God has prophets all over Israel. I think that's why he chose Jonah. Remember the uh, rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, this commandment and this commandment and this. He's like, I've kept all those. Jesus knew that he, what he had or hadn't done. So Jesus said, oh, there's one more. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus nailed it right there. You're covetous. You've not kept the commandments from your youth. You're covetous. I think he picked Jonah because Jonah was prejudiced. I think this whole story is not about Nineveh, because God knew they would slip back into sin and be destroyed. He knows the future. He knows the infant beginning. This whole book exists for Jonah to repent. You and I are given the message of reconciliation. We're given the great commission. But don't forget, Christian, we need to repent too. If we're going to preach repentance, we need to be repenting people. If I'm going to be in the pulpit, I need to be a repenting person. Be repenting people. 
Be repenting people. Another thing I would take away from what I just read is all men know that God exists. Don't let them tell you they don't. They know. They know. And there are people out there. I don't think these sailors were anti-God. I don't think they knew God. They come to fear Jehovah God, it says later on in this chapter, through this experience. There are people out there who have a vague idea of God. It's your job and my job to lead them to him and to make him known to those people. That's our job. Number three, let me give you another one. Leaving the land of Israel did not excuse Jonah from his work as prophet. And we can fill our lives with recreation and hobbies. We can work all the time. We can do whatever we want to do. We're given the Great Commission. We are never abdicated from our responsibility to share the gospel. I don't care if you go out with us to preach on the streets or you do it at the gas station and the grocery store. I don't care where you do it. We have a divine obligation to share the gospel with the lost. Everybody, not the pastor, from the pulpit to the pew, everybody in this church has an obligation to be faithfully a witness for Christ. And don't hate people. If you hate somebody, like I said, repent and go be a missionary to those people. You owe them the gospel. But what sins do we hold on to? Here's Jonah, fine prophet, holding on to the sin in his heart. My, my overwhelming thing that sticks out to me as I read this, I was thinking, as I, as I preach, I, I think. That's why sometimes I say the wrong thing, because I'm thinking. And I was, I was reading one of these verses. In my mind, I said, Rick, you need to be repenting if you're going to ask people to repent. So I'm going to take that thought as something from the Holy Spirit as a message to our church. Be a repenting church. Don't tolerate sin. Don't hold on to sin. Don't play fast and loose with sin. We should be confessing every day, all the time. You sin, confess it. You know the Bible tells us he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you know that is predicated on if we confess our sins. If we confess our sins. So we'll pick up this chapter next week. But for now, be repenting. Faithfully repent. Don't run from God. Do what God tells you to do. When God tells you to do it. One of my favorite sayings is delayed obedience is disobedience. When God says do it, do it. Right then. No excuses. And be faithful. Be faithful. We'll finish this chapter next week. Jonah, there's so much in Jonah. As I've been studying it, there's so much. It's, it's so much more than the flannel graph Sunday school story. It's not a cutesy whale of a tale. It's a very sad story of sin, depravity. Jonah is the every man. 
As I said, I see myself in what Jonah's life is. I've run from God. I've not done what God wanted me to do when God wanted me to do it. I've harbored sin and hatred and these other things. I've been a hypocrite. That's what Jonah is later on when he preaches repentance, but he still hates the people. He's a hypocrite. Jonah, I think, so is such a great story because he is the every Christian. <laughs> and he's a, he's a lesson for us. A lesson for us. So this week, be faithful, be repenting, be witnessing. Look for opportunities to share the gospel. God has tasked every one of us to be witnesses. And we need to be faithful to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this evening and for the the portion of the chapter we got through. I think I bit off more than I could chew with it, Lord, but that's all right. You know, man plans his way where the Lord directs his steps. We, we make plans, but you know what's going to happen. Lord, I, I've been very sober in studying Jonah because I see myself in Jonah sometimes. Lord, help me not to be disobedient. Help me to be repenting all the time. I sin. I want to be cleansed of that sin. I want to seek you afresh. Lord, let me not hide iniquity in my heart. As we talked about Sunday night, let, let, let me not coddle it, pet it, entertain it, hide it. Where can we go from your presence, Lord? We're not going to run to Joppa or try to cross the sea to run away from you. But we try to hide our sins that way, don't we, Lord? As if you don't see right down to the heart. As if it escapes your notice. Lord, may our hearts be fixed on Christ. The better Jonah, the greater than Jonah. Praise the Lord. If Jonah was our example, we'd be lost. But he points to a better, to Christ. The one who said, I always do those things that please the Father. Father, draw us nearer to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.